0: And I I heard, you know, recently, I don't know how true it is, but I heard, you know, that's one of the reasons why Brooklyn traded me because, you know, they thought I had too much going on off the court and I wasn't getting Hmm. enough sleep. Um, But they didn't realize that I, you know, that I had a whole team behind me and I, you know, I'm not, you know, doing day-to-day management. So I don't think that's something that they realized. I mean, I don't think any any NBA player could do that. This is Trevor Booker, eight-year NBA vet entrepreneur and partner at J.B. Fitzgerald Venture Capital, and this is The Game Plan.
1: You may know our next guest from his nine-year career in the NBA, playing with the Wizards, Jazz, Nets, 76ers, and most recently, the Indiana Pacers. But when he's not going hard in the pain or flipping in no-look-behind-the-head buzzer beaters, our next guest is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and private equity partner at J.B. Fitzgerald Capital. Today, we're thrilled to have Trevor Booker on The Game Plan. Trevor, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me.
2: Yeah, Trevor, you know, you went 23rd overall in the 2010 draft, and you've built a pretty memorable career now in the NBA. But how early in your career did you start thinking about entrepreneurship, and, you know, what excited you about life outside of basketball?
0: Uh, it's probably my <clears throat> my second year in the NBA. You know, I started listening to the, you know, the veterans on the team, uh, mainly uh, Al Harrington, you know. Before then, you know, all of would think about was, you know, basketball and and just saving money. I was always good with my money, but I was just thinking about, you know, just saving and saving and saving. I started, you know, listening to Al Harrington talk a little bit more, you know, in the meetings about, you know, investing your money and, you know, different things you can do to be, you know, smart with your money and different things that he had going on with company wise. He would, you know, talk about business. a lot. sometimes I would listen, sometimes I wouldn't, and then, you know, one conversation, you know, something clicked. And, you know, from then on, you know, I listened to to everything that he said, and it got me a lot of places. So they really, you know, inspired me to uh, to get going and get the ball rolling. You know, he would always talk about networking and, you know, how important that was. So that's something that I started to do from that day on.
1: Did you feel like that gave you the opportunity then to kind of pay it forward to some of the younger guys that you would share a locker room with? Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely so, because, you know, I was in their shoes at one time and I see a lot of the guys being the same way I were, you know, my rookie year, saving money and, you know, being very frugal. So, I you know, I try to talk to them about different ways they can invest their money and be safe with it, because these days it's hard to uh, know who to trust with your money. Uh, you see a lot of guys taking advantage of. So if, if it's coming from me, they're more likely, you know, to take my advice than somebody else's.
2: Yeah, it's it's an interesting point you mentioned that you know we we hear this narrative a lot about guys who are a couple years after retirement they're having financial hardship yeah. or they're having some sort of struggle with their money. You know, you talked about the advice piece of it, but. In your experience from the guys that you've seen, the guys that you've played with, what are some of the reasons they they struggle with that? And maybe why why hasn't the message gotten through?
0: I think the biggest thing now that I, you know, stepped back from sports, maybe the last year and a half or so, you know, I got to experience what it's like without, you know, being in the NBA. So I can give a little bit better perspective now that I, I've experienced it. I think the biggest thing is just when you're in the NBA, you know, you see those checks coming in. So... You, you live a certain lifestyle, but you don't realize, you know, after you finish playing, those checks are not coming in anymore and your lifestyle is going to have to calm down some. You know, a lot of those guys probably, you know, try to live the same lifestyle and it, it caught up with them.
1: Yeah, did you feel like guys had anticipation for a max contract or like another big contract coming and it would be the younger guys in that sense expecting another contract? Or was it just like ignoring the future? Because this has become... A lot more, I should say. There's a lot more awareness now with guys. It's so it seems, but from your experience, it also sounds like it's still a problem. So, what really changes for these guys? What really clicks with them, or what clicks for you to say, okay, I gotta take care of my chickens? Is, as Marshawn Lynch said,
0: well, growing up for me, you know, we never had much money, and my parents, you know, the money that we did have, they were wise in their spending. So that's something that was passed down to me. So, you know, it started with great parents for me. They taught me, you know, how to spend my money. Like I said, I was very frugal, but you know, for some guys, they don't have that. So once they get money, they're going out and spending crazy. Uh, they want to, you know, buy their parents a house, buy them a car, things that you probably shouldn't be doing uh, within the first couple of years of your contract, probably not on your rookie contract. Uh, you could save up for it, but those are things that I didn't do until, you know, my second contract. Uh, I didn't buy my parents a house until my second contract. So some guys get caught up in, you know, they're in the NBA, so they got a lot of money now, but they don't realize tomorrow is not promised in the NBA. You know, anything could happen. You could be a borderline player and, you know, get cut the next year, or you could have a bad injury and, you know, and lose your, your spot on the team or in the NBA or whatnot. A lot of young players don't think it like that, but... And like I said, you know, for the older guys, I think it's just the lifestyle. They they've been in that lifestyle for you know so long, whether it's you know six or seven years, and they used to you know spending this amount a month, and then you know once they stop playing, they they're not doing anything. They're just living off that money that they had coming in, but their money is going to eventually run out if you don't you know invest it right.
1: Yeah, And I'm sure there's also a perception bit where you you think about the contract number, but sometimes you forget. Uh, that half like almost half that gets taxed. <laughs> um, you, you don't forget when you get the check and you're like, well, wait a second, where's the other half but um, you know you, you feel it. So well, I want to get into the investing. So one of your first operational investments was to launch a boarding school in Charlotte for international students called the Combine School. And that school is now in five states with over 40 different countries represented. Tell us a little bit about why you started this school and what your biggest learning experience has been while operating it. Well, I
0: started the school Combine Academy with my best friend. Uh, his name is Jonah. He had some experience running a, a basketball academy himself, you know, with his mentor. So he was, you know, front lines with it. And, you know, we would always talk about, you know, different business ventures that we could start. And he had, a, you know, access to a list of kids, you know, internationally that were looking to come over here and play basketball and get seen. And, you know, so we just, you know, took that list and ran with it. And He had experience. So we was like, you know, let's give it a shot. We lived together one summer and we planned everything out. We started recruiting um, like two months in advance before we opened up the schools. So we had, you know, a short period of time. But our plan was to get the kids to come over and have them pay up front, you know, their tuition so we wouldn't have any overhead. So the kids paid up front. And then all the profit that we made from the first well, even until now, we just reinvested back into the school so we can keep growing. But, you know, we built everything from the ground up. Um, And now we sit on a we sit on a 43 acre campus, you know, here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our basketball uh, team, our national basketball team, at one point was ranked 35th in the nation. Wow, that's uh, awesome! So, yeah, so we we it, we're growing, you know, pretty fast. We decided to cut off all other locations and focus, you know, here on the central location and, and just build it up into a national powerhouse.
2: Yeah. So, so if I might ask, you know, what what were what were the learnings from from going to a lot of different locations and then deciding, hey, we want to we want to come back to one? You know, what did you learn when you were expanding it out?
0: So we would something that we would do was have everybody start in the in the central location first here in Charlotte. And then they would have to prove themselves and then, you know, took the guys that we felt like were ready and they could run a, an academy, a location, you know, we sent them off to different locations, Orlando, Chicago, Atlanta.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we would trust them. We would still guide them and everything and give them resources. Uh, but we would try to start another combined academy but we will, you know, spread ourselves thin um, because we still needed those staff members on our on our team back in, in the central headquarters. So I think that was the biggest thing, just running ourselves thin because uh, we tried to grow a little bit too fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, move a little bit too fast without, you know, focusing on, you know, the main product, which is here, right here in Charlotte first.
2: Yeah, that's a really solid point. And it's something that, you know, Tim and I as investors, we see a lot, which is you see all this opportunity, right? As an entrepreneur, and you get really excited about it, and you're like, you know what? I just I got to get in there. And then you realize that at the end of the day, people are coming to you for the core product, right? And so, so you've recognized that that core product has to be super strong. And if that core product is strong, then all that expansion, that opportunity is always going to be there. Hopefully, hopefully it's going to be there, right? But I'm curious as you're talking about you've done, you know, real estate investing. You've got the academy, and you're doing all these things while you were still, you know, an active player. How do you balance it all, man? How do you find the time and energy to balance all that?
0: You know, I don't manage the day-to-day. That's why, uh, you know, you have to have a team, especially if you're, you know, an NBA player. you got to have a solid team around you and a team that you can trust, and, and that's what I built. You know, it starts with my best friend, Jonah. Um, he's the head of my team. You know, he manages, you know, everything day-to-day. You know, I get updates and I make, you know, big decisions, but, you know, he he's he's the managing partner of every uh, every company. Uh, So every day, you know, he's on it, handling, you know, everything. But now that I'm, you know, not playing right now, you know, I could be a little bit more hands-on. But I I think that's something in the NBA that some of the GMs uh, didn't realize. And I I heard, you know, recently, I don't know how true it is, but I heard, you know, that's one of the reasons why Brooklyn traded me because, you know, they thought I had too much going on off the court and I wasn't getting Hmm. enough sleep. Um, but they didn't realize that I, you know, that I had a whole team behind me and I, you know, I'm not, you know, doing day to day management. So I don't think that's something that they realized. I mean, I don't think any any NBA player could do that.
2: Yeah. That's sort of sort of an interesting, I guess, follow up on that. I mean, you've played on a couple of different teams now. What has been the attitude from whether it's the NBA or it's, you know, the, the team execs that you've seen at these different, you know, whether Washington or or Indiana what have been the reactions to people saying, "Hey, you're an investor. You know, you're doing all these different things." We see it with with Spencer uh, Dimwitty. You know, he's doing his stuff. What has been the perception uh, that you've seen from these executives when they find out that you're doing these things, independent of just what happened in Brooklyn?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had you know mostly you know great feedback. You know, they're excited what I'm doing. They love what I'm doing. You know, I heard from a GM or or two about you know me having uh too much stuff going on off the court. You know, they, they would tell my agent that. But like I said, they didn't realize that I had a whole team behind me. But for the most part, you know, I've gotten great feedback. You know, especially from, you know, the players, players union. You know, they provide, you know, me with heavy resources. They had me come and speak at, you know, different events that they have, put me on panels. So they, you know, given a lot of respect.
1: Yeah. And that part about having a team you can trust is so I mean, in a lot of ways, if you flipped it the other way around and you asked a front office or an owner who's got other things going on, like, how do they do it? It's the same way. There's a whole team of people to support. So it's it's great that you've been able to link up with Jonah. And I want to dig in more to how you guys decide to launch J.B. Fitzgerald Venture Capital. But first, I want to go back to the academy for a bit. You know, there's been a lot of talk around youth sports and specifically basketball development with overuse injuries and things are catching up to the NCAA in a way where some players are deciding to forego the NCAA altogether and play overseas or do other types of development. You were a four-year NCAA guy. I'm curious to get your thoughts with all of the perspective you have on the state of you know, basketball development and what you guys do to help mitigate a lot of those issues that are rising up.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a tough situation because Uh, A lot of people are divided on, you know, whether players should get paid or, you know, whether they shouldn't as an NCAA athlete. And I'm an athlete, you know, I think the players should get paid. And then, you know, some people are like, you know, how should they get paid? Should everybody get paid equally or should the star athletes get more? I'm I'm sure, you know, that's a discussion to have and, you know, somebody can come up with some kind of solution. But in the end, I think, you know, the athletes should get paid. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of, top players go overseas now to play, you know, that one year and then try to come back over here and get drafted. And I think that's going to, you know, start hurting the NCAA more. And, you know, eventually they're going to come up with something where the players get paid. I don't think it's going to be fair still, but I can see them, you know, implementing something where they lose just a little bit of money and they give it to the players just to make, you know, try to make everybody happy. Um, So it's definitely a sticky situation and we'll just see how it plays out.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's been it's been evolving. I think over the last few. I mean, we saw the Ed O'Bannon case most recently, right? About uh, him getting actually the the compensation for his likeness. So it seems like things are shifting in the right direction. But uh, but but yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. It's crazy that the NCAA makes billions of dollars off of effectively room and board is what they're paying. Right. It's, it's kind of crazy to imagine how long they've been doing that. So so why don't why don't we talk a little bit? About you you alluded to uh, the fund and, and and working with Jonah. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. So tell us about JB Fitzgerald Venture Capital and what got you excited about getting involved in in building that all out.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people in the NBA just knew my background. They knew what I had going on, you know, off the court. Uh, they just you know heard different stories and you know had you know read a, a couple of different articles. Uh, So they knew what I had going on off-court, and, you know, they would spread the word. So different deals would come across the table, you know, that we would look at. And, you know, that inspired us to, you know, start a fund. So, I mean, we've gotten into some cool projects. We are investors in a a Shark Tank company called Nobo. It's an eco-friendly shampoo, and we're partnering with uh, Mark Cuban. He actually, you know, invested during a Shark Tank show. Uh, and we're looking to launch here soon. Uh, we have other cool investments like DCU United, the soccer team. Uh, oh, yeah. And, yeah, minority partners in that. Um, a lot of people don't know that. i seen James Harden. He got recognized for it uh, because he was partners. He uh, invested in, you know, the Houston team. Um, and, it, you know, it was all over TV and all that. But Yeah, you've my, been doing my, that for years, people man. I know that, that, you know, I was the first active player to do it, at least that I know of other than LeBron overseas, right? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had deals come across our desk all the time. So we decided, you know, to start a, to start a fund and, you know, we hired some analysts to, to vet the deals and, you know, we just took off from there.
1: Yeah. And this is a follow-up question to that. You've invested in everything from real estate to boarding school, to CPG brand that raised nearly $300 million and in, in even an MLS team. So take us through, how you source your deals and what your due diligence process looks like or your team's process looks like?
0: Yeah. Well um, we have three analysts that vet the deals starting with my, my best friend Jonah. Uh, Again, he's the managing partner. So, you know, he's the head person over everything. So what we try to look for, you know, within the company is I think the biggest thing is how stable the company is right now. And, you know, how can we get our money back plus more, And that starts with, you know, the owner, the founder, you know, if if we feel they're solid and they have a a good head on their shoulders and show a lot of promise and and knowledge within the company, you know, we feel comfortable and then we we take a deeper dive and, you know, look at the, you know, the financials, the whole structure, the vision and, and all of that. And if we feel comfortable enough, we'll negotiate some terms.
2: Yeah. And and how involved do you get with that investment uh, after you guys have allocated? I know there are some investors that are super active; they take board seats, and others are more, you know, on the capital side, and then they'll help with relationships. On that spectrum, where where do you guys really feel involved after the investment?
0: Everything that we invest in, we try to be hands on. Uh, we have a, a couple of you know passive investments, but for the most part, we try to be hands on. Because we feel like if we're hands-on and we're trying to help the company succeed, you know, it's only going to help us. Uh, we're trying to help the company grow as much as you are. So, you know, um, so we're definitely hands-on with all our companies.
2: Yeah. What 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 is, I mean, tell us a little bit, give, give us an example maybe. What does hands-on mean? Is it relationships? Is it digging into the financials? How do you get involved?
0: Uh, Whatever they need, honestly. we We try to, you know, look at a company. And if they're if we feel like they're weak in that spot, and then we try to help them out in that in, in that area, you now whether it's you know pointing them in the right direction, uh, introducing them to you know somebody that may be super helpful to you know looking at financials, anything that we can uh, can do to help.
2: Yeah, and and how has that you know obviously we're we're in this sort of unprecedented time with COVID nineteen. You know we're hoping that things go back to normal relatively quickly, but but again we're you know sort of nobody really knows. When you think about the last couple of years that you've been investing, how has your investment approach and criteria of things that you're looking at changed or has it has it changed?
0: Yeah, definitely. So since I haven't been in the NBA in the the last couple of years, um, you know, I I moved to, you know, mostly real estate. We still look at, you know, some venture capital deals, but we found a niche in real estate that's, you know, a little more safe since I don't have that money uh, coming in like I used to. So you know, we we went the real estate route. You know, we still can grow our money, but at the same time, you know, eliminate some risk. And the real estate market is the is the perfect market for that.
1: Yeah, and going back to your venture capital days, there's a term that's pretty common around the idea of an anti portfolio, which talks about the biggest deals that maybe you missed, but. For, for those of us who, who have some big misses, it, the confidence that we take in that is that, well, at least we saw the deal. You're only as good as the deals that you've seen. So when we spoke to Langston Galloway recently on a show, I talked about how I passed on StockX very early on. That was my big miss. But um, would love to hear if you have any, any examples of maybe a miss you know, that our, our listeners would be familiar with or something like that, if you'd be willing to
0: share. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we have any misses right now that, you know, really turn into, you know, big hits. Uh, it's, it's it's still possible, though, because we've turned down a few deals um, yep. that look, you know, pretty good. So it's still possible. So I think only time would tell.
1: Yeah, and the best the best behavior as an investor is to have a short memory on that stuff anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's it's like the games, right? When you're playing uh, four games in a week, it's like, you know what? You you had a bad one, move on. You got a new one coming up. So yeah, right. <laughs> That that's right. And so I know that uh as you've been been going through and evolving your criteria and and looking at the sort of opportunities you're looking at, I guess what what are you most excited about going forward uh as an investor? You know, is it is it real estate? Is it venture capital? Now that you're sort of in this phase and seeing what the future uh, might look like in terms of investing, what excites you the most?
0: Uh, I think the biggest thing is probably real estate. Uh, like I said, we're still going to look at some venture capital deals when they come across the table, but I think the biggest thing that interests us right now is real estate. Um, yeah. you know, we really, you know, found a niche and you know figured out the market. And, you know, we've had some promising deals, you know, come our way and some promising deals that we've invested in. You know, right now we own over uh, 250 doors. So we're, we're heading into the real estate market and yeah, uh, and, and we're loving it. That,
2: that's great, man. And, and on the venture capital side, you know, I was looking at some of the companies in the portfolio and, and I'm always curious how different investors deal with it when, uh, when a company isn't performing as well, right? And so we saw with, with something like Brandless, which we know a lot of a lot of investors are involved yeah, in, in company. Yeah. Yeah. It looked it looked real good for a while. And, and then, did, you yeah. know, how do you how do you handle that? I mean, what does what that you know, what does that do to you and how do you handle it when something like that happens?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it was shocking when it happened. Uh, um, but as an investor, you uh, you got to realize that you got to realize the risk with your money uh, when you're investing in a company. You, you realize you got to look at that money as, as it going gone that you're never getting it back. You're taking a risk or you're taking a gamble. And uh, as an investor, you understand that. So it's, um, if you understand it, it makes it a little bit easier to sleep at night.
1: So your stated goal is to someday own an NBA team. And like you said, you're currently a partial owner of DC United. What does the path look like for you to achieve that goal?
0: I mean, getting in so early into uh, MLS, uh, the path is looking pretty good, you know? Um, you don't see many guys get in, you know, this early, this young as a um, a major sports league owner. So, you know, we're making the right connection. So I think, you know, in the near future, we could see uh, something where I have some ownership into an NBA team.
1: Yeah, I guess a good question to ask on that before we wrap um, is, you know, now that you're on the other side of the table and, you know, it's not like you're the GM or the president of the club or you're actively negotiating the deals with the players of the league on the D.C. United side. But, you know, any any learnings you picked up or kind of cool insights you had as an owner versus being on the player side?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as a, a minority owner, we still got to sit in on, you know, meetings with the, the GM and coach, you know, after the game, sit in the owner suite uh, with the owners, the rest of the owners, the managing partners. So it's pretty cool just to see, you know, the different things that they talk about uh, versus, you know, the things that they talk about in the locker room.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we hear it. I mean, I'm, it's, uh, it's always interesting when you see the guys, when I used to work at the NFL that were players and then they would come work in the league office and, and you would hear from them, they'd be like, man, this is what you guys do. If I knew this was going on when I was a player, I would have done things way differently. So it's always, it's always interesting to see it on the other side of the table. So look, I, we you've been so, you've been so generous with your time. Um, I think we'll wrap on, on a question that we'd like to ask all of our guests because we know that The folks listening to the show are not just startup folks and venture capital folks, but also college athletes and, and, you know, even pros right now that are thinking about what do I do when the game ends? So from your end, Trevor, what is advice that you would have for other athletes as they're thinking about getting ready to take that next step after the game?
0: But it's funny that you ask that question right now, because I'm actually uh, announcing my retirement in a couple of hours. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I'm in that boat right now, you know, but I would say my advice to those guys are network, you know, and try to think about what you want to do, you know, after the game, something that you would love doing. And, you know, you could network in that field, especially the NBA. You know, they they provide so many resources for you. Uh, they're practically you know set you up with you know a top person in that in that industry in that field and let you get experience you know under them and mentorship so you know as an NBA player I was lucky to have the the players union uh, provide those resources for me so I would just say you know as soon as possible just try to figure out the route that you want to go you know after you know basketball and start approaching it now.
1: Well we talked to quite a few players, uh, both former and current pro athletes. And it's really impressive what you've done for yourself and and what you've built off the court. And so I think that's going to lead to a really uh, exciting retirement. And so hopefully we can be one of the first to tell you congratulations. We won't be the first to break the news since we'll release this after your announcement, but we wish you all the best and we really appreciate you coming on the game plan. Thanks. Yeah, I
0: appreciate you guys having me.
2: So at the end of every episode, Tim and I like to do what we call our weekly partner meeting, which is an opportunity for us to talk about the company or fund that you just heard about and share our perspectives on some of the challenges that they might face. And Tim, we ended up talking to Trevor on a pretty important day for him because he's announcing his retirement today. But I wanted to hear your perspectives and, and thoughts on on Trevor and the opportunities ahead for him.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, it was cool to be kind of in the moment with him. He said he's literally announcing his retirement in a few hours, and so that's a lot of the people we talk to in our show are retired athletes, and so to actually be in that moment of yeah, like okay, I'm committing to this um, is a big deal. We obviously we didn't want to pry too much since he kind of popped that on us at the end, but um, So that was kind of exciting. I was interested in learning about the combine Academy since that was one of the first investments he had done. And you don't typically hear about like your first non-traditional investment being an Academy. It made sense once he started to talk about it because his business partner had some experience with that. I think that, um, it was good too how he shared, uh, what you, how you take your learnings to, you know, you want to capture every single opportunity, but really you got to stick to the core mission. Or I think maybe you layered on some of that feedback and I think that's absolutely right. And that translates to a lot of um, things for athletes, especially when they transition into post-career. I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about this, where when you're an athlete, you've got such a structured, literally game that you play, but like the, everything is, um, categorized and there's statistics around everything. You know what the goal is to be achieved, right? It's to to win the championship or to achieve on court greatness. But and 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 then you get compensated accordingly. But like once that ends, it becomes unclear what the rules are. Um, so yeah. you know, uh, like the analogy I was kind of using is like you know in a game it's easy to know when and where to shoot because the opportunities are finite. But once you're retired, the opportunities are actually unlimited. And so, and the finite thing is actually where you put your mind and your time, your effort and your investment. And so I think that's a big challenge that we've discovered with our guests that we've gotten into. And so that's like the, I guess to wrap it, the point about the Combine Academy and like bringing that back to the core mission of it was I think a learning he had in that first investment where he wanted to grow it and expand it, but really he's just, he had to deliver on the core mission.
2: Yeah, I think one of the, this is a, a human challenge, right? Or, or I would say this is a common challenge for entrepreneurs, because I think what makes entrepreneurs so unique from, you know, the, the average human being is that they have this optimism. And they, they you kind of have to, right? You're creating something out of nothing. You have to see an opportunity and just have an immediate optimism that, you know what, I'm the person to go make that into something. And so I, it's Completely understandable, completely relatable. Look, as you and I are are building this show from from nothing, right? We want to capture on every opportunity that we see. And so I feel a kindred spirit with an entrepreneur when he says, I saw these opportunities, I expanded out to reach them. And then, like most entrepreneurs also do, you learn that you're spreading yourself too thin. I think he was the one that, you know, was very honest about that, where he said, we were spread too thin and we weren't able to. Uh, really deliver on the core mission and deliver on the core promise. And then we had to scale back to be able to go and do that. You know, what's interesting on the idea, on that same topic of doing a little too much, uh, this is the first time I've ever heard an athlete tell me or tell us that a team, you know, commented on the fact that they were doing too many things off. Yeah. The I couldn't believe that. I know we, we hear, we hear rumors here and there about it, but you know, look, it's, it's, I understand, and some of our guests have even told us that, you know, when you're playing football, when you're playing baseball or basketball, the coaches want you to be 100% about the game. Because to your point, their compensation, their goals, their targets, their scoreboard is set based on your win-loss record and whether you make it to the championship, right? But these are human beings. These are individuals. Most of them are in their 20s. and They've been playing this game since they were six or seven years old. And they are in the top 1% of what they do. But for you to basically, you know, I don't know, like, like, you know, patronize them a little bit and say, hey, you're not allowed to go do anything else, even though you are this, you know, incredibly gifted person with all these different ideas, all these different access and opportunities, and you cap them, you know, the, the flip side of it is nobody is capping the team executive or the owner and telling them, hey, you can't go do more than one thing right so it's it was it was kind of wild to hear that because i've never heard anybody say that that's something that happens right
1: or if it's like the the number one guy on a roster i feel like you don't hear that even if they are clearly doing a lot of stuff off court um sure so that part is curious and then also the part about his comment was he he mentioned that uh they had told him or he had heard like it was maybe tied to not not getting enough sleep so makes me wonder if there was actually like more of a quantitative reasoning behind it where I, I don't know if you know the team made him wear a whoop band or whatever it was to say like oh you're not getting enough sleep but that would be more of like the quantitative argument around it versus just like oh you're doing a yeah. lot so that I mean I could have gotten into a whole conversation about like um player biometrics and like who has the rights to that and all you know yeah, that whole yeah, piece yeah. of it yeah, we didn't we didn't do that maybe yeah. we could do that with if we if we bring on an entrepreneur from one of those types of companies but um, it brings up another interesting point. So, I, I, yeah, yeah, I was I was really intrigued by that because I hadn't heard that before either.
2: I, I think I think we're going to see that shift. I think it it absolutely has to, and this is something that I've been on my soapbox about for a while, which is these athletes bring a tremendous amount of value to these companies, and if your company can benefit from having a celebrity co-founder uh you're you're absolutely crazy not to do it because the the intangible values they're bringing in terms of their brand, their network, their resources and a lot of them have really great ideas you know beyond just their relationships and who they are they contribute really great ideas because they are tastemakers they are you know part of the culture and if you're a team and you're going to limit somebody i mean i think back to when kevin durant went to the golden state warriors Right. And obviously, everybody talked about, hey, he's going over there because, you know, he's going to a team with 73 wins and he's going to try to win a championship. But there's a real value of him going over there because we know how many things he does in terms of his investments and his, you know, media properties off of the court as well. So
1: so I have to say on that. Yeah, Yeah. maybe I'm biased because I'm a Thunder fan, but um, taking the fan part out of it, I think there's a bit of revisionist history on like the motives to go to the Bay area and to get involved as an investor. I mean, I've, I've heard if you go back and listen to some of the early things that were said, um, while he was still with the warriors, you know, not that we're like here to be, um, these armchair quarterbacks, but basically it was, there was no intent or even thinking really around the venture capital thing when they first got out there as you and I know, like if you spend any time in the Bay area, no matter if, you're one of the best basketball players in the world or you're a barista, like literally all you hear is, is talk around investment and companies. And so like, I think maybe it was a little bit of both, but it's, it was also one of those things like once you get out there, there's just no avoiding it. And so if you are curious or interested in it, then you could really juice it. And so naturally as they got more involved, it was easy to say, Oh, that was part of the appeal. Um, and, and, who am I right to say either way, but, um, I guess what we were talking about more is like the juice a player can add or the support a player, a player celebrity endorsement can add. And I agree with you. I think what it gets really interesting, though, it's an interesting dilemma for entrepreneurs, because what I found in my experience in companies I've advised and invested in is um, they'll, they'll bring in a celebrity or athlete to contribute or you'll have some of those early conversations and their business partner or manager will really want to define it. And they'll be like, oh, what do you as a company think that? Great. Like Mm -hmm. the value is that we can provide. Well, in the founder's chair, you're obviously, you you know, your mind just starts going all over the place about all the potential there. And the most basic piece of it is like, oh, well, we want to use like name image likeness to help support. We'd love to help help have support on content or this or that promotion. Um, But then what ends up happening, if it's a really formal agreement, it actually like the relationship breaks down very quickly because then it feels Mm -hmm. like antagonistic or, um, just, it, it feels way more like the endorsement, you know, then they start to compare it to the actual endorsement deals they have where they say, well, wait a second, I'm getting paid by Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever to, you know, endorse their product. But now I'm having to like pay you or I'm just getting these options, which I don't really understand. So in my experience, the best partnerships on that stuff has been, uh, Certainly formal on like the terms of agreement in terms of warrants or, you know, investment, but in in terms of the specifics around what the talent is doing basically just very open-ended and saying like, look, we're going to be here as the company all day long to like get you involved. And we want that, but we're not going to force your hand on anything because that's not going to create a healthy relationship. I
2: think it's, it's a little bit of the sign of the times too, Tim. And I think we are in this shifting, uh, you know, time in venture capital and, you know, in sort of the startup ecosystem where people are, you know, leaving uh, some of the more risky opportunities and moving towards, Some more safer opportunities, right? And you heard that from our conversation with Trevor as well. He said, you know, I was doing a lot more stuff on the venture capital side. And then, even over the last couple of years, as he, uh, you know, was leaving the game of basketball, he said, I'm now shifting over to real estate and something that has maybe some safer uh, economics or maybe a little bit more predictable of a capital cycle. Because we know your your money in in a venture capital fund, your money in a startup, it's locked up until. Either the company goes belly up or they exit and you you get some money back, right? Whereas with real estate, you can pace out some of that that capital return a little bit. Um, but but to, I guess tie that to your point, I think we're going to see that interest shift. And to to me, really the point I was trying to make was, I think that interest is gonna become a little bit more organic. Those relationships work really well when that uh, when that relationship is organic. So coming back to whether it was um, Justin Forsett and Shower Pill, right? getting really involved in that, Sean Green and Greenfly and him, you know, being the the founder behind it, who really built it up. So I think you're going to see this interest shift as there are folks who were, you know, maybe, I don't wanna say tourists, but maybe they were sort of exploring the opportunity in this category, go away. And then the folks that are really interested, really wanna dive in, want to be co-founders of these businesses, seize on the opportunity that they have right now to say, I can build a category-defining brand, not just because of who I am, but also the ideas and the relationships that I bring into it. So Trevor, I think, has a little bit of a head start to it, uh, but he's, like I think a lot of folks, thinking about how he balances his exposure in the market based on everything that's going on right now.
1: Well, Jay, I think that's a great way to wrap this week's partner meeting. Thanks again for joining me on The Game Plan.
2: Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. We really enjoyed having Trevor on the show on what turned out to be a pretty significant day in his life. Make sure to follow Trevor on Twitter and Instagram to see all the investments that he's making in his second career after the NBA. And a big thanks to Swish Goswami for making the intro to Trevor. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan.